Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories. This one, a doubleheader from one of our favorite classic authors, O. Henry, who is known for his witticism, clever wordplay, and surprise twist endings. His prolific writing began in New York City in 1902, which is a rich landscape of stories for any aspiring writer, and he took advantage of the opportunity. You might remember The Gift of the Magi, which we ran just a few weeks ago. In our first story, Hearts and Hands, a Miss Fairchild is traveling on a train from Denver and seated across from an old acquaintance with whom she carries on a very interesting conversation, never knowing that appearances can be deceiving. In the second story, Buried Treasure, we join the narrator on a hunt for buried treasure that leads to a treasure of another kind. And now, Hearts and Hands by O'Henry. At Denver, there was an influx of passengers into the coaches on the eastbound B&M Express. In one coach, there sat a very pretty young woman, dressed in elegant taste and surrounded by all the luxurious comforts of an experienced traveler. Among the newcomers were two young men, one of handsome presence with a bold, frank countenance and manner, the other a ruffled, glum-faced person, heavily built and roughly dressed. The two were handcuffed together. As they passed down the aisle of the coach, the only vacant seat offered was a reversed one facing the attractive young woman. Here the linked couple seated themselves. The young woman's glance fell upon them with a distant, swift disinterest. Then, with a lovely smile brightening her countenance, and with a tender pink tinging her rounded cheeks, she held out a little gray-gloved hand. When she spoke, her voice, full, sweet, and deliberate, proclaimed that its owner was accustomed to speak and be heard. Well, Mr. Easton, if you will make me speak first, I suppose I must. Don't you ever recognize old friends when you meet them in the West? The younger man roused himself sharply at the sound of her voice, seemed to struggle with a slight embarrassment which he threw off instantly, and then clasped her fingers with his left hand. It's Miss Fairchild, he said with a smile. I'll ask you to excuse the other hand. It's otherwise engaged just at present. He slightly raised his right hand bound at the wrist by the shining bracelet to the left one of his companion. The glad look in the girl's eyes slowly changed to a bewildered horror. The glow faded from her cheeks. Her lips parted in a vague, relaxing distress. Easton, with a little laugh, as if amused, was about to speak again when the other forestalled him. The glum-faced man had been watching the girl's countenance with veiled glances from his keen, shrewd eyes. You'll excuse me for speaking, miss, but I see you're acquainted with the marshal here. If you'll ask him to speak a word for me when we get to the pen, he'll do it, and it'll make things easier for me there. He's taking me to Leavenworth Prison. It's seven years for counterfeiting. Oh, said the girl, with a deep breath and returning color. So that is what you are doing out here, a marshal. My dear Miss Fairchild, said Easton calmly, I had to do something. Money has a way of taking wings unto itself. And you know it takes money to keep step with our crowd in Washington. I saw this opening in the West, and, well, a marshalship isn't quite as high a position as that of an ambassador, but... The ambassador, said the girl warmly, doesn't call anymore. He needn't ever have done so. You ought to know that. And so now, you're one of those dashing Western heroes, and you ride and shoot and go into all kinds of dangers. That's different from the Washington life. You have been missed from the old crowd. The girl's eyes, fascinated, went back, widening a little, 
to rest upon the glittering handcuffs. Don't you worry about them, miss, said the other man. All marshals handcuffed themselves to their prisoners to keep them from getting away. Mr. Easton knows his business. Will we see you again soon in Washington? asked the girl. Not soon, I think, said Easton. My butterfly days are over, I fear. I love the West, said the girl irrelevantly. She looked away out the car window. She began to speak truly and simply, without the gloss of style and manner. Mama and I spent the summer in Denver. She went home a week ago because father was slightly ill. I could live and be happy in the West. I think the air here agrees with me. Money isn't everything, but people always misunderstand things and remain stupid. Say, Mr. Marshall, growled the glum-faced man. This isn't quite fair. I'm needing a drink and haven't had a smoke all day. Haven't you talked long enough? Take me in the smoker now, won't you? I'm half dead for a pipe. The bound travelers rose to their feet, Easton with the same slow smile on his face. I can't deny a petition for tobacco, he said lightly. It's the one friend of the unfortunate. Goodbye, Miss Fairchild. Duty calls, you know. He held out his hand for a farewell. It's too bad you're not going east, she said, reclothing herself with manner and style. But you must go on to Leavenworth, I suppose. Yes, said Easton. I must go on to Leavenworth. The two men sidled down the aisle into the smoker. The two passengers in a seat nearby had heard most of the conversation. Said one of them, That marshal's a good sort of chap. Some of these western fellows are all right. Pretty young to hold an office like that, isn't he? Asked the other. Young, exclaimed the first speaker. Why, oh, didn't you catch on? Say, did you ever know an officer to handcuff a prisoner to his right hand? Our second story, Buried Treasure, will begin in just a moment. And now, Buried Treasure by O. Henry. There are many kinds of fools. Now, will everybody please sit still until they're called upon specifically to rise? I had been every kind of fool, except one. I had expended my patrimony, pretended my matrimony, played poker, lawn tennis, and bucket shops, parted soon with my money in many ways. But there remained one rule of the wearer of cap and bells that I had not played. That was the seeker after buried treasure. To few does the delectable furor come, but of all the would-be followers in the hoof prints of King Midas, none has found a pursuit so rich in pleasurable promise, anyway. But, going back from my theme a while, as lame pens must do, I was a fool of the sentimental soft. I saw May Martha Mangum, and was hers. She was eighteen, the color of the white ivory keys of a new piano. Beautiful! and possessed by the exquisite solemnity and pathetic witchery of an unsophisticated angel doomed to live in a small, dull, Texas prairie town. She had a spirit and charm that could have enabled her to pluck rubies like raspberries from the crown of Belgium, or any other sporty kingdom, but she didn't know it, and I did not paint the picture for her. You see, I wanted May Martha Mangum for to have and to hold. I wanted her to abide with me and put my slippers and pipe away every day in places where they cannot be found of evenings. May Martha's father was a man hidden behind whiskers and spectacles. 
He lived for bugs and butterflies and all insects that fly or crawl or buzz or get down your back or in the butter. He was an etymologist, or words to that effect. He spent his life saning the air for flying fish of the June bug order and then sticking pins through them and calling them names. He and May Martha were the whole family. He prized her highly as a fine specimen of the Racibus humanus because she saw that he had food at times and put his clothes on right side before and kept his alcohol bottles filled. Scientists, they say, are apt to be absent-minded. There was another besides myself who thought May Martha Mangum one to be desired. That was Goodloe Banks, a young man just home from college. He had all the attainments to be found in books, Latin, Greek, philosophy, and especially the higher branches of mathematics and logic. If it hadn't been for his habit of pouring out this information and learning on everyone that he addressed, I'd have liked him pretty well. But even as it was, he and I were, you would have thought, great pals. We got together every time we could because each of us wanted to pump the other for whatever straws we could find, which way the wind blew from the heart of May Martha Mangum. Rather a mixed metaphor. Goodloe Banks would never have been guilty of that. That is the way of rivals. You might say that Goodloe ran to books, manners, culture, rowing, intellect, and clothes. I would have put you in mind more of baseball and Friday night debating societies, by way of culture, and maybe of a good horseback rider. But in our talks together, and in our visits and conversation with May Martha, neither Goodloe Banks nor I could find out which one of us she preferred. May Martha was a natural-born, non-committal, and knew in her cradle how to keep people guessing. As I said, old man Mangum was absent-minded. After a long time, he found out one day, a little butterfly must have told him, that two young men were trying to throw a net over the head of the young person, a daughter, or some such technical appendage, who looked after his comforts. I never knew scientists could rise to such occasions. Old Mangum orally labeled and classified Goodloe and myself easily among the lowest orders of the vertebrates, and in English, too, without going any further into Latin than the simple references to Orgatorix, Rex Helvetchel, which is as far as I ever went myself. And he told us that if he ever caught us around his house again, he'd add us to his collection. Goodloe Banks and I remained away five days, expecting the storm to subside. When we dared to call out the house again, May Martha Mangum and her father were gone. Gone! The house they rented was closed. Their little store of goods and chattels was gone also. And not a word of farewell to either of us from May Martha. Not a white fluttering note pinned to the hawthorn bush. Not a chalk mark on the gatepost, nor a postcard in the post office to give us a clue. For two months, Goodloe Banks and I, separately, tried every scheme we could think of to track the runaways. We used our friendship and influence with the ticket agent, with livery stable men, railroad conductors, and our one lone, lorn constable, but without results. Then we became better friends and worse enemies than ever. We foregathered in the back room of Snyder's saloon every afternoon after work and played dominoes and laid conversational traps to find out from each other if anything had been discovered. That is the way of rivals. Now, Goodloe Banks had a sarcastic way of displaying his own learning and putting me in the class that was reading 
Poor Jane Ray, her bird is dead, she cannot play. Well, I rather liked Goodloe, and I had a contempt for his college learning, and was always regarded as good-natured, so I kept my temper. And I was trying to find out if he knew anything about May Martha, so I endured his society. In talking things over one afternoon, he said to me, Suppose you do find her, Ed. Whereby would you profit? Miss Mangum has a mind. Perhaps it is yet uncultured, but she is destined for higher things than you can give her. I've talked with no one who seemed to appreciate more the enchantment of the ancient poets and writers and modern cults that have assimilated and expended their philosophy of life. Don't you think you are wasting your time looking for her? My idea, said I, of a happy home is an eight-room house in a grove of live oaks by the side of a charcoal on a Texas prairie. A piano, I went on, with an automatic player in the sitting room, 3,000 head of cattle under fence for a starter, a buckboard and ponies always hitched at the post for the missus, and May Martha Mangum to spend the profits of the ranch as she pleases and put my slippers and pipe away every day in places where they cannot be found of evenings. That, said I, is what is to be, and a fig, a dried Smyrna Dago stand fig for your curriculum's cults and philosophy. She is meant for higher things, repeated Goodloe Banks. Whatever she is meant for, I answered, just now she is out of pocket, and I shall find her as soon as I can without the aid of colleges. The game is blocked, said Goodloe, putting down a domino, and we had the beer. Shortly after that, a young farmer whom I knew came into town and brought me a folded blue paper. He said his grandfather had just died. I concealed a tear, and he went on to say that the old man had jealously guarded this paper for twenty years. He left it to his family as part of his estate, the rest of which consisted of two mules and a hypotenuse of non-arable land. The sheet of paper was of the old blue kind used during the rebellion of the abolitionists against the secessionists. It was dated June 14, 1863, and it described the hiding place of ten burrow loads of gold and silver coin, valued at $300,000. Old Rundell, grandfather of his grandson, Sam, was given the information by a Spanish priest who was in on the treasure burying, and who died many years before, no, afterward, in Old Rundell's house. Old Rundell wrote it down from dictation. Why didn't your father look this up? I asked young Rundle. He went blind before he could do so, he replied. Why didn't you hunt for it yourself? I asked. Well, said he, I've only known about the paper for ten years. First there was the spring plowing to do, then chopping the weeds out of the corn, and then come taking fodder, and mighty soon winter was on us. It seemed to run along that way year after year. That sounded perfectly reasonable to me, so I took it up with young Lee Rundle at once. The directions on the paper were simple. The whole borough cavalcade laden with the treasure started from an old Spanish mission in Dolores County. They traveled due south by the compass until they reached the Alameda River. They forded this and buried the treasure on the top of a little mountain shaped like a pack saddle standing in a row between two higher ones. A heap of stones marked the place of the buried treasure. All the party except the Spanish priest were killed by Indians a few days later. The secret was a monopoly. Eh, it looked good to me. Lee Rundle suggested that we rig out a camping outfit, hire a surveyor to run out the line from the Spanish mission, 
and then spend the $300,000 seeing the sights in Fort Worth. But without being highly educated, I knew a way to save time and expense. We went to the state land office and had a practical, what they call a working sketch, made of all the surveys of land from the old mission to the Alameda River. On this map, I drew a line due southward to the river. The length of lines of each survey and section of land was accurately given on the sketch. By these, we found the point on the river and had a connection made with it and an important, well-identified corner of the Los Animos Five League Survey, a grant made by King Philip of Spain. By doing this, we did not need to have the line run out by a surveyor. It was a great saving of expense and time. So Lee Rundle and I fitted out a two-horse wagon team with all the accessories and drove 149 miles to Chico, the nearest town to the point we wished to reach. There we picked up a deputy county surveyor. He found the corner of the Los Animos survey for us, ran out the 5,720 veras west that our sketch called for, laid a stone on the spot, had coffees and bacon, and caught the mail stage back to Chico. I was pretty sure we would get that $300,000. Lee Rundle's was only to be one-third, because I was paying all the expenses. With that $200,000, I knew I could find May Martha Mangum if she was on Earth. And with it, I could flutter the butterflies in old man Mangum's dove cot too, if I could find that treasure. But Lee and I established camp. Across the river were a dozen little mountains densely covered by cedar breaks but not one shaped like a pack saddle. That did not deter us. Appearances are deceptive. A pack saddle, like beauty, may exist only in the eye of the beholder. I and the grandson of the treasure examined these cedar-covered hills with the care of a lady hunting for a wicked flea. We explored every side, top, circumference, mean elevation, angle, slope, and concavity of every one for two miles up and down the river. We spent four days doing so. Then we hitched up the roan and the dun and hauled the remains of the coffee and bacon the 149 miles back to Concho City. Lee Rundle chewed much tobacco on the return trip. I was busy driving because I was in a hurry. As shortly as could be after our empty return, Goodlow Banks and I foregathered in the back room of Snyder's saloon to play dominoes and fish for information. I told Goodlow about my expedition after the buried treasure. If I could have found that $300,000, I said to him, I could have scoured and sifted the surface of the earth to find May Martha Mangum. She is meant for higher things, said Goodlow. I shall find her myself. But tell me how you went about discovering the spot where this unearthed increment was imprudently buried. I told him in the smallest detail. I showed him the draftsman's sketch with the distances marked plainly on it. After glancing over it in a masterly way, he leaned back in his chair and bestowed upon me an explosion of sardonic, superior, collegiate laughter. Well, you're a fool, Jim, he said, when he could speak. It's your play, said I, patiently, fingering my double six. Twenty, said Goodlow, making two crosses on the table with his chalk. Why am I a fool, I asked. Buried treasure's been found before in many places. Because said he. In calculating the point on the river where your line would strike, you neglected to allow for the variation. The variation there would be nine degrees west. Let me have your pencil. Goodlow Banks figured rapidly on the back of an envelope. The distance from north to south of the line run from the Spanish mission, said he, is exactly 22 miles. 
It was run by a pocket compass, according to your story. Allowing for the variation, the point on the Alameda River where he should have searched for your treasure is exactly six miles and 945 veras further west than the place you hit upon. Oh, what a fool you are, Jim. What is this variation that you speak of? I asked. I thought figures never lied. The variation of the magnetic compass, said Goodlow, from the true meridian. He smiled in his superior way, and then I saw come out of his face the singular, eager, consuming cupidity of the seeker after buried treasure. Sometimes, he said with an air of the oracle, these old traditions of hidden money are not without foundation. Suppose you let me look over that paper describing the location. Perhaps together we might. The result was that Goodlow Banks and I, rivals in love, became companions in adventure. We went to Chico by stage from Huntersburg, the nearest railroad town. In Chico, we hired a team drawing a covered spring wagon and camping paraphernalia. We had the same surveyor run out our distance, as revised by Goodlow and his variations, and then dismissed him and sent him on his homeward road. It was night when we arrived. I fed the horses and made a fire near the bank of the river and cooked supper. Goodlow would have helped, but his education had not fitted him for practical things. But while I worked, he cheered me with the expression of great thoughts handed down from the dead ones of old. He quoted some translations from the Greek at much length. Anacreon, he explained. That was a favorite passage with Miss Mangum, as I recited it. She is meant for higher things, said I, repeating his phrase. Can there be anything higher, asked Goodlow, than to dwell in the society of the classics, to live in the atmosphere of learning and culture? You have often decried education. What have your wasted efforts through your ignorance of simple mathematics? How would you have found your treasure if my knowledge had not shown you your error? We'll take a look at those hills across the river first, said I, and see what we find. I am still doubtful about variations. I've been brought up to believe that the needle is true to the pole. The next morning was a bright June one. We were up early and had breakfast. Goodlow was charmed. He recited Keats, I think it was, and Kelly, or Shelley, while I broiled the bacon. We were getting ready to cross the river, which was little more than the shallow creek there, and explore the many sharp-peaked, cedar-covered hills on the other side. My good Ulysses, said Goodlow, slapping me on the shoulder while I was washing the tin breakfast plates. Let me see the enchanted document once more. I believe it gives directions for climbing the hill shaped like a pack saddle. I never saw a pack saddle. What is, what is that, Jim? Score one against culture, said I. I'll know it when I see it. Goodlow was looking at old Rundle's document when he ripped out a most uncollegiate swear word. Come here, come here he said, holding the paper up against the sunlight. Look at that, he said, laying his finger against it. On the blue paper, a thing I had never noticed before, I saw stand out in white letters the word and figures, Malvern, 1898. What about it? I asked. It's the watermark, said Goodlow. The paper was manufactured in 1898. The writing on the paper is dated 1863. This is a palpable fraud. <sighs> I don't know, said I. The Rundles are pretty reliable, plain, uneducated country people. Maybe the paper manufacturers tried to perpetrate a swindle. 
And then Goodloe Banks went as wild as his education permitted. He dropped the glasses off his nose and glared at me. I've often told you you were a fool, he said, to have let yourself be imposed upon by a clodhopper. And you have imposed upon me. How, I asked, have I imposed upon you? By your ignorance, said he. Twice I've discovered serious flaws in your plans that a common school education should have enabled you to avoid. And, he continued, I've been put to the expense that I could ill afford in pursuing this swindling quest. I'm done with it. I rose and pointed a large pewter spoon at him, fresh from the dishwater. Goodloe Banks, I said, I care not one parboiled navy bean for your education. I always barely tolerated it in anyone, and I despised it in you. What has your learning done for you? It is a curse to yourself and a bore to your friends. Anyway, I said, away with your watermarks and variations. They are nothing to me. They shall not deflect me from my quest. I pointed with my spoon across the river to a small mountain shaped like a pack saddle. I am going to search that mountain, I went on, for the treasure. Decide now whether you are in it or not. If you wish to let a watermark or a variation shake your soul, you are no true adventurer. Decide. A white cloud of dust began to rise far down the river road. It was the mail wagon from Hesperus to Chico. Goodloe flagged it. I am done with the swindle, said he sourly. No one but a fool would pay any attention to that paper now. You, well, you always were a fool, Jim. I leave you to your fate. He gathered his personal traps, climbed into the mail wagon, adjusted his glasses nervously, and flew away in a cloud of dust. After I had washed the dishes and staked the horses on new grass, I crossed the shallow river and made my way slowly through the cedar breaks up to the top of the hill shaped like a pack saddle. It was a wonderful June day. Never in my life had I seen so many birds, so many butterflies, dragonflies, grasshoppers, and such winged and stinged beasts of the air and fields. I investigated the hill shaped like a pack saddle from base to summit. I found an absolute absence of signs relating to buried treasure. There was no pile of stones, no ancient blazes on the trees, none of the evidences of the $300,000 as set forth in the document of Old Man Rundle. I came down the hill in the cool of the afternoon. Suddenly, out of the cedar break, I stepped into a beautiful green valley where a tributary small stream ran into the Alameda River. And there I was startled to see what I took to be a wild man with an unkept beard and ragged hair pursuing a giant butterfly with brilliant wings. Perhaps he's an escaped madman, I thought, and wondered how he had strayed so far from the seats of education and learning. And then I took a few more steps and saw a vine-covered cottage near the small stream. And in a little grassy glade, I saw May Martha Mangum plucking wildflowers. She straightened up and looked at me. For the first time since I knew her, I saw her face, which was the color of the white keys of a new piano, turn pink. I walked toward her without a word. She let the gathered flowers trickle slowly from her hand to the ground. I knew you would come, Jim, she said clearly. Father wouldn't let me write, but I knew you would come. What followed, you may guess. There was my wagon and team just across the river. I often wondered what good too much education is to a man if he just uses it for himself. If all the benefits of it are to go to others, where does it come in? For May Martha Mangum abides with me. There is an eight-room house in a live oak grove 
and a piano with an automatic player, and a good start toward the 3,000 head of cattle is under fence. And when I ride home at night, my pipe and slippers are put away in places where they cannot be found. But who cares for that? Who cares? Who cares? Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. You can catch all our episodes at iTunes Podcast app, as well as podbay.fm, stitcher.com, audioboom.com, iHeartRadio, and just about anywhere podcasts are found. Our show is weekly and usually premieres every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're part of a growing 1001 Stories podcast network, and we invite you to enjoy our sister show, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, at all the same locations just mentioned. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, and our Twitter address is at 1001podcast. And for those of you who could care less what a podcast is, just go to www.1001storiespodcast.com, and you'll be able to listen to all our episodes there. We really are shooting for 1001 episodes, and when we get there, that sign we use will change to 2001. It continues to be a fantastic journey for us here, and I appreciate each and every one of you who listen, review, and share our shows. Thanks to all of you for your support. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 